Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. So welcome everybody to the Mind Vine Podcast. Uh, <laughs> We're actually in our main lobby today. We don't usually do this for everybody, so uh, it's kind of a special day. Um, My name is Daryl Mathers. I'm with my co-host, Chris Bovey, and we have a very special guest, Elianka Larianov, is with us. And if the name sounds familiar, it's because um, people my age and older would remember your dad pretty much um, when we were kids watching Canada Cup playing for then the Soviet Union and then following his uh, NHL career. But... Um, we've also gotten to know you uh, in your own right, in your career as a broadcaster, podcaster, producer, writer, and uh, now in your work uh, with advocacy as it relates to eating disorders. So first of all, welcome. Thank it's great you. great to have you. Yeah, I'm honored to be here, um, and it's been wonderful to get to know you guys and also just to explore and kind of get a better feel of where we are today. And um, I think you all should be so proud of the work that you're doing um, so I've, I've learned a lot already and I'm excited to see where this conversation takes <laughs> us. You might regret saying that. But, um, <laughs> it was, uh, I want to thank you for being here because it's one of those situations where I saw your story um, and your web, on your website uh, and uh, while viewing some of the work that you're doing and trying to change the conversation or ignite conversations. And uh, I sent an email through those like that uh, contact us box thinking, She's not going to get back to me, <laughs> but uh, you did, and uh, we exchanged some emails, and uh, you're doing some work in Toronto. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, later, but uh, you made time to come here to kind of learn about uh, our eating disorders program and, and kind of the, the work we're doing, but uh, I want to talk about your experience. Uh, yeah, your broadcaster linked to hockey, but um, what you're doing now relates mostly to your personal experience with eating disorders, and um, you talk about how even at an early age you remember kind of the, the, the early signs. So you can just start by just telling us a little bit about your, your story. Yeah, I mean, m- my story is so, so broad, I guess. Um, and I always get this question of, can you tell me your story? And it's funny because in the work that I do now in having conversations uh, with people, I always ask them to do that and they so seamlessly and flawlessly answer. And for me, um, I feel like I've lived so many different lives, but they're all kind of interconnected. Um, and every single experience that I have had um, has led me to be here today. And so even the negative ones have changed and shaped me into the person that I am today. Um, I'm originally from Russia, and I migrated to Canada, actually, um, in 1989, when my father was um, acquired by the Vancouver Canucks. He was an NHL player, and, um, you know, from the age of three, I basically had moved around. I went to multiple different elementary schools. I went to three middle schools, different ones, three different high schools. Um, so the idea of, of change and never having a home and never being able to place roots was kind of a, a, a root cause for me to want to um, harbor a space of control. Um, you know, the other side of it, I think, was living in the shadows of my father's last name, um, having to cater to somebody who 
whose career was so amazing and, and, and he as a human being is so amazing um, that we all kind of fell second to, in order to make sure that he could achieve the things that he wanted to. Um, and I think as, a, as an obedient child like myself and someone who's kind and caring, um, my lack of standing up for myself and having self-esteem and saying, hey, I matter, um, you know, significantly contributed to the development of my eating disorder as well. Um, and then as I became an adult and uh, embarked on my career as a, as a broadcaster and a host first and then a producer, um, you know, I really kind of developed this idea that the way that I looked mattered um, in conversations that I would have with producers um, and or other female broadcasters of, you know, you need to lose a couple pounds, you need to look a certain way, you need to dress a certain way, could you be more flirty but not too sexy? And, you know, all of these conversations for a young, impressionable 20-year-old, you know, really kind of solidified in my mind that it didn't really matter what was going on inside my heart or inside my head. It was the way that I presented myself and looked. And, you know, for having two parents who were athletes, um, their way of upbringing was task-based. So if you work hard and if you, you, you know, sweat and bleed your way through the process and you accomplish certain goals, um, then you'll get there. And there was really no personal or emotional development. So in a sense, you know, I was kind of like the perfect storm for developing these eating disordered behaviors. Um, and, and, I lean negative. You know, my psychological mindset is is to lean negative, is to find the glass half empty. Um, and without having proper tools to have check-in systems or in a space to really talk about how I feel, which is a global issue, not just within my family, um, you become very isolated and you become very um, involved with your own personal world. And so all of a sudden your best friend is your eating disordered voice. Um, and it wasn't until recently that I stepped into recovery. Um, it's been 13 months now and um, you know, I'm learning every single day and it, I'm so grateful for almost losing my life because it allowed me to kind of go through a rebirth and, and be here now with you today so going back to when you were younger obviously you know um, trying to find identity and, and, and worth and all that and traveling all over and having parents that were very athletic could there have been something that was there anything at school or anything that you tried to find that sort of for that avenue to sort of give yourself your own identity mm -hmm. as opposed to sort of being the daughter of yeah, I mean, I think, you know, at the beginning I was really into sports. So when I was a kid, I, I played tennis and that became something of an obsession. But because I hadn't achieved by 12 and 13 the level of success that my parents had, I was labeled a failure within my family. Um, and afterwards, I dived into the world of entertainment, which uh, manifested in the form of singing at that point. And same thing, it was like, oh, you're not, you know a 20-year-old Britney Spears, so you're not successful either. Um, and so the hobbies that I had kind of committed to became obsessions instead of really trying my hand at everything and figuring out what do I like? You know, what makes me happy? Uh, how do you feel about this? Um, what are you curious about? I mean, these conversations were never had. And so every time I committed to something and didn't work out, it just solidified in my mind that I was a failure. 
which I think is why broadcasting, um, specifically starting off in hockey, was so addictive and seductive because one, it created an opportunity for my father and I to have common ground, to have a conversation. All, all of a sudden I could talk to him about something that he understood. Um, and two, it gave me purpose in trying to prove that I wasn't my last name. But I didn't know then what I know now is that um, you can carve your own path, you know, um, and chasing something to prove that you matter is never going to give you the result that you want. When we talk about eating disorders and today, when we've kind of tour the facility, we also talked about, you know, the stigma that's surrounding it. And, you know, there's obviously the, the stigma that presents itself around mental illness, but even more so uh, around eating disorders in particular. And can you give people a sense of what, you know, you, you say you struggled for about, you know, it was a 10-year journey before yeah. you kind of stepped into recovery. But you, you also, in one, something I read, um, said you were kind of like an expert in your own illness in terms of disguising, yeah. you know, like the things that you would do in the workplace and how, you know, behaviors that you would uh, employ to kind of um, just live your day-to-day -day life. Can you give us a little bit of, you know, kind of what that like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think for any mental illness or for any addictive behavior, um, we who are suffering are so emotionally and intellectually intertwined and become involved with this person almost. And so we know the system inside and out, which is why it's so difficult to treat this and to really help somebody get into recovery is because I can outsmart you in my own illness. Um, and so for me, you know, it, it was figuring out a way to avoid and restrict food, um, but making it seem like I was consuming. And I think what was beneficial to to the upkeep of my disorder was the fact that I kept moving and changing jobs all the time. So no one really knew what I used to look like or what I used to uh, eat like. And so, you know, the excuses that I would sell would, would, would really sell, you know, like I'm not hungry or I don't like to eat before a big interview because it makes me nauseous. You know, um, I think Darren Pang, actually, um, who was a hockey player, goalie, and became a broadcaster, talked a lot about, like, before a live broadcast, he would he would throw up because he was so nauseous. So I'd be like, well, Darren does that. So, like, <laughs> you know, my behaviors are totally normal. Um, but, you know, the stigma of it, you know, that's an interesting question because I don't think that I realized that I was ill until two days before I stepped into recovery. I had multiple incidences in my life where, you know, I had facial paralysis, um, I had osteopenia, so I would have broken bones, I broke both of my ribs, I'd lost my menstrual cycle for three and a half years. I mean, you know, all of depression, I mean, all of these things kept coming up, but I didn't recognize that I was ill. Um, and it wasn't until an ER doctor said to me, you are going to die. Um, you are on the brink of organ failure. Your brain is atrophying. You know, I wasn't able to formulate sentences or think. I mean, there was one point where I was holding my mom's hand in the ER, and I, I look at her and I go, who is this? Whose hand is this? And I couldn't recognize my own mother. Um, I think when you go through something like that, you know, a, you think, oh my God, there's something wrong with me. And then that stigma comes in like, oh no, this is a mental illness. How is this going to make me look? And there was 
two or three months at the start of my recovery where I was reluctant to talk about it because I thought no one's going to hire me after this. Like, I'm going to get better, but no one's going to hire me after this. And then people are going to hold me accountable to being recovered, you know, whatever that means. Um, but when I started to talk about it openly, I all of a sudden received such incredible feedback, both publicly and privately through direct message or emails where people would say, I too suffer. I too have an eating disorder or I too am bipolar or I too am, you know, whatever it is. And I have no one to talk to about this. That all of a sudden it, it, it occurred to me that the stigma exists because there aren't enough people talking about it and advocating that it's normal. You know, it seems not normal, but it is normal. It, 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 it's far too common. Um, and I think that the more that we're able to speak our truths, the quicker we're able to heal. Um, and we need people who are ambassadors and advocates to really start this conversation and open the dialogue um, to take away that stigma. And how do we facilitate that at a younger age? So, you know, kids might be in a, in a a home life where you really can't have that conversation. And I get the sense it was probably a challenge for, for you as well. Yeah. Um, how do they find the people? Because you're right, I think they think that nobody will care or understand. And then when you kind of take that leap of faith, all of a sudden people you didn't even know out there are coming forward to support and have that conversation. So how do we get create a society or open, that kids can open up at an early age to feel maybe alone? Or no one out there understands. Yeah, I think for me, it's something that I talk about when I speak in schools, and I can only speak on the school system in the States, not so much in Canada, but one of the questions that I ask the, the faculty is, how many counselors do you have for 600 students? And one person raises their hand. And what are your office hours? You know, normal office hours, and how many times do kids come in? Eh, like a few kids come in once a week. So to me, this idea that, A, we don't have enough counselors, um, it's not um, something that's an open door policy. I mean, that's what they say, but what kid, what adult is gonna come up and say, I need help? Mm no one. Um, so whether it's changing the education system to a place where we're including emotional intelligence classes, um, not saying it is like a mental health issue, but emotional intelligence, you know, we're so quick to educate our brain from an educational standpoint of, in, you know, math, science, the arts, um, same thing with um, aiding in an in injury. You know, you have a broken rib or whatever it is, you, you get it taken care of, but our brains are the most powerful organ that we have and we're not focusing on it at all. So I think as adults and as a society, we need to change the system and provide a space for kids to be able to talk about this. But at the same time, I think, you know, if there is one thing that social media is really wonderful in, in the way that we can for those who are willing to step into the role of ambassador to create that space through social media and say, you can talk to me, you can reach out to me, you can send me an email. Um, because most of the times kids are willing to talk. It's just that we're not really asking them, how are you or how are you feeling? Um, what do you want to talk about today? You know, something as simple as that um, all of a sudden allows them to feel safe and, and also taking away the shame that occurs when a kid says, I'm so embarrassed because my parents don't talk to me like this. So like my parents are bad people or I'm a bad kid, that's why they don't listen to me. You know, like we need to take that shame out of the equation and just say, 
not everyone has the ideal family dynamic. Find the people who are willing to listen and those who are listening, practice actively listening. It's a skill. It's not something that just like happens overnight. So, you know, having conversations like this, this is what's going to help change it. One of the things you said earlier today too was when you were in recovery, you educated your family. Like yeah. you kind of, you know, dragged them might be a strong term, but, you know, you all got kind of educated on this together, did you not? Yeah, I mean, m my recovery was very non-traditional in that um, I tried the route of working with doctors and nutritionists and therapists, and it just didn't work because I didn't feel like anybody could hear me. And it was more about putting a Band-Aid on the problem. It was a lot of prescribing pills. It was a lot of... Um, all the things like let's eat, but let's not figure out what is the source, cause, or root of the situation. And so I really kind of took it upon myself to self-educate and to move through the process on my own, not saying that everybody should do this. That that's just the way that I did it. Um, and because I was immobile during my recovery, I had to move back home and I had to be with my parents. And so I had to deal with all of those scars and bruises and wounds and open all of them up with them by my side and excavate and kind of unpack every single one. You know, this is why this hurt. This is why when you did this, this happened. Um, even when they would say like, seriously, we're still holding on to that? Yes. We are. Let me get this out of my system. And having those difficult conversations. You know, my father, um, I grew up in a, in a space where healthy eating was the normal way of being, right? So for him to say, like, why don't you just eat? You know, I had to separate his lack of knowledge um, in this subject matter from him being a poor father. You know, those two aren't correlated. And so instead of pointing fingers at him, looking at myself and saying, why am I reacting this way? It's, it's not his fault that he doesn't know, so how can I help educate him? Um, and that just takes self-discipline, and it's really, really hard. And that's something that people don't talk about is that in, this, in the space of recovery, it takes a lot of work and you need to be willing to do it, but you also need to have an incredible support system. And, you know, for me, there were a few friends that I can name um, and then books and um, podcasts and just hearing other people tell their story made me feel less alone. So I was just going to mention, so I know you're doing a lot of work. Uh, United States, and you're going to go back to, to Russia to support, to help women there as well. I'm just wondering, culturally, if you found or what you expect, you know, knowing your father who grew up in Russia, like, are you finding cultural changes and perceptions of mental illness or, or eating disorders in different, different places? And is that going to be a more and more of a challenge in different countries than others? Or? Yeah, I mean, I think culturally speaking, it, it shifts from country to country, but like, let's take something in our own backyard here. Um, the NHL probably won't be happy that I'm saying this, but um, let's talk about locker room mentality. Um, and in the way, you know, D Daniel Carcillo is actually talking a lot about um, mental health advocacy within the league and that, you know, there are 
uh, abuse of painkillers and there are suicides and, um, you know, the syndromes that occur post-concussion and that nobody's talking about it. Um, also the effects of, you know, toxic masculinity. Um, so I, I don't know that this is like a country to country thing. I think it's, it's just a, it's a global issue and, um, something that I think men need to step up to the plate, but also women in including men in the conversation. And what, what's amazing about this time right now is that um, there are people that are at least willing to talk. And so what we need to do is to unite instead of segregate. And so uh, something else that I think is quite controversial to say is like, I don't fully support the Me Too movement because as much as it is empowering women, which I think is really important and allowing women to have the opportunity to, to talk about abuse and inappropriate behavior, um, we need to include men in the conversation as well. Um, and until we get into a space where, you know, we can include everybody, I don't think any changes can be made. Um, so, you know, I'll say this on camera to the NHL, like I've reached out to them and said, I'd love to facilitate workshops for you guys, you know, in the locker room, off the record, private, to start having these conversations. Like, what are the behaviors that these men are conducting? Because by the way, part of me stripping my femininity and the way that I looked stemmed from being in the locker room as a young reporter, I was objectified. I thought I had a shield on me because I was Igor Larionov's daughter. No, 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 no single, married men, it didn't matter. You know, they would come on to me in a way that I was fair game as if I was a piece of meat. And so I thought, okay, well, I can't stop this, so let me make myself as unattractive as possible. No one's talking about that. Um, so these are issues that I'm, I'm willing to, to say openly and I'm, I'm willing to call out people um, until things change because they, they have to. You're both parents, you know, I eventually want to have a child as well. I want my kid to be able to grow up in an environment where I, I have an idea that she's at least somewhat safe. Um, and so it's our responsibility, and that's really the only way that I see it. Earlier today we sat with uh, clinicians, um, staff that are on our eating disorders unit, and it was, it was, I wasn't even sure what to expect when we went down there, to be perfectly honest. Like, you expressed a desire to kind of learn. You kind of describe yourself as a lifelong learner. And uh, so we just sat around a table, and you asked some questions. They asked some questions of you. It was pretty cool, actually, like, you know, to hear that. Them ask you about what you thought in a particular situation. I'm just wondering what you thought of that whole experience this morning. Well, for me, it was such an honor to be able to sit with professionals and hear not only their stories, but their fears, their concerns, um, their wins, their losses. It was a very vulnerable conversation. And those, to me, are the best kinds of conversations because that's where all the growth happens, right? It's, it's being able to say that I don't know everything. Um, you can't possibly. And, you know, there's always an opportunity to learn. And I also think that you know, for someone like me to be able to share my story with them, to give them an inside perspective of what it feels like to suffer and to feel hopeless and helpless and to feel like the end is better than recovery um, and admitting that openly, but then again, finding the strength to pull in the support system to be able to pick yourself out of there. Um, 
it really felt like a healing moment. I mean, it felt like a therapy session for me, um, and I think for them as well. And and and, you know, and we talked about this in the room that those are the conversations that need to surface to light. We need to create that kind of dialogue and mass produce it in a way because um, that's how we facilitate change. That's how, by the way, we support parents who are struggling to understand their child as they're going through something absolutely devastating and difficult. Um, I, I mean, I'm just going to keep repeating this conversation. Mm. Like that's that is what is going to drive change. Conversation and then actionable items. Okay, what did we learn here, and how can we apply this? And who do we need to talk to to make this happen right now? Mm. Not in ten years, but how do we get this going right now? And, and we talk about, you know, we have in Canada we have Bell Let's Talk campaign, and there's different dialogues. But eating disorders, we don't seem to talk about. Yeah. Why is it? You know, we'll have sort of broad mental health discussions, but something so important that has such a, you know, it's such a serious situation that we sometimes we just don't seem to want to talk about it openly. Well, is there something specific? I think it's such a sensitive um, subject matter because it's based around food, um, and food is something we have to consume on a daily basis, and it's not something, you know, let's say if you talk about alcoholism, you just take something out and you, you try to have a different mindset, but with food, it's, it's something that's part of life, culture. Um, but I think the other side of it is body image. Um, and that, to me, is the biggest misconception. Another conversation that's not being had is that I've had so many conversations where, with girls and men, actually off the record, about I didn't want to say that I have an eating disorder because I don't look the part. Like, I remember not wanting to post a photo of myself um, when I was exceptionally thin because I thought, well, the eating disorder, specifically anorexic community, is going to say, oh, please, that's child's play. You're not, that's not even, you know. And I, so I think the, the shift in conversation that needs to happen is that it's not so much what's going on in, on the external, it's what's going on in the internal. And so until I fully recognize that my organs were dying, my brain function wasn't working, um, when we stop looking at people for the shape that they're in um, and start talking about that we can't function as humans, period, um, then perhaps the conversation's going to shift. But until then, you know, I mean, how can you judge by the way that I look what that means? And um, it's, it's too complex and, and too sensitive of a subject in terms of body image. When you first went public with your, your journey, your recovery, um, was there much, like, being a public person, you know, probably the last, you know, most of your adult life, being a broadcaster, being a being center of attention, that's nothing new to you. But bearing your soul and what you've been struggling to keep hidden for 10 years, that, that was new. So what was the experience like just kind of um, opening up and bearing your soul to the world? Yeah, I think the moment of sending that tweet and that email, I was sweating profusely and thinking, oh my God, I'm about to ruin my parents' life, one, um, because they're such good people and, and they care about maintaining that. Um, and I didn't want to place a you know, red flag on them as they're bad parents for having a kid like me. Um, 
but also how is this going to affect my professional life? How is this going to affect my personal life? Um, but again, this is something that I, I preach in my workshops is, one, when you speak your truth, the right person stays. So for me, it's an amazing filter of getting out all the negative people out of my life. Um, and two, in a certain way, you know, when we talk about our fears, if we, if we go back to child psychology, when a child is afraid of the dark, right, they run to their parents' room and they're like, there's a monster in there. And the first thing the parent does is walk into the room and turn on the light. And when the light's on, you see that it's not that big of a deal. And it's the same thing with our stories. The more that we're, we're familiarized with them, the more that we know them intimately, and the more that we speak them out loud, we, we understand them so fully that they no longer have control over us. And, and so we're leading it instead of the story leading us. And so the importance of that, you know, for me was a building up my strength, but then empowering others to know that they can do that too. And if they have fear, reach out. I'm here to walk you through it. Um, and so hopefully that creates some sort of a ripple effect for others to be able to, to get themselves familiarized with their story. Because I will say that not everybody needs to go public. You know, part of the conversation that I had in my head was be sure that you're doing this to help yourself and help others versus seeking attention and seeking validation. And I really needed to weight those out and to understand on which side of the platform I was standing. And when it became clear that it was bigger than me, when it was about helping others, it was solid. Like, I mean, it, it, I could see that this was the path for me to take. And, and that's just being in, in tune with your intuition and, and really knowing whether or not you're speaking and being from a space of love. Do you feel like that it, it has, it is having the desired impact on you? Like I know for sure you're helping others uh, because uh, anybody who speaks out about complex mental illness from our experience, we know that they're helping others. They're inspiring. You know, somebody's going to see this and they're going to be inspired to get help. But is it having the kind of the desired impact on your own recovery? <laughs> There obviously have been difficult times in it because I think when you talk about something openly, you create expectations um, for yourself and from others, um, and these can be perceived or real. Um, but at the same time, I think it does, in a way, keep you accountable. Um, and it holds up a mirror, you know? so. It, it's more of a question like, are you willing to commit? And are you willing to do the work? And by the way, commitment means allowing yourself to take steps back. And when you do, instead of berating yourself, practice kindness. Say, it's okay, I just did that, but guess what, I'm gonna move forward again. Um, and so, yeah, I think it does help because again, you're shining light on it and you're opening it up and as long as you add in that filter of kindness, when you do inevitably take a step back, because we all do, um, then it's more of a softer transition versus this just like, I'm going and you know when I, then I don't make it, I'm a failure. Um, and I don't particularly even like using that word. You know, It's just a minor setback. Um, so yes, I, I fully support that. Um, and I, I encourage others if not to talk about it publicly, at the very least start writing about it in your own personal journal, just so you can have that conversation and hold up a mirror for yourself. In, in terms of your career, um, we all know you from 
you know, your hockey days on TSN and CBC and in the States on MSG and, and other networks. Um, did that for a long time. But that's not where your work is now or where you see it going forward, is it? No, I mean, you know, the process of stepping into recovery really was like a rebirth for me and realigned um, my passions and, and, and really purpose because I, I realize sports matter to people, but I also understand that it's entertainment. Um, and that's fine and, and good, but I think that a lot of people who have that platform aren't using it properly um, and or perhaps are not being guided to, to use it for, for the benefit of others. Um, and so for me, it really became clear that in the experience that I've had as a host, broadcaster, and a producer, I have the ability to have the conversations that I've always wanted to have, but was never able to because I can't come up to you know, a TSN and say, like, I want to talk about the meaning of life with Henrik Lundqvist. <laughs> They're going to say, no, he wants to talk about, well, actually, Henrik would talk about his hair and style, so that's <laughs> a bad example, probably. Um, but I think, you know, in, in producing content like that, that's kind of, you know, the dream goal or, or something that I'm focusing on, but also in having conversations like this and, and having them in, you know, a safe space. I don't really like the word safe because what does that mean? Um, but, you know, within the workshops that I, I do, they're, they're two-hour conversations that vary between, you know, all sorts of topics on what it means to be a modern human in today's society. And that matters because society is shifting, the definition of a human being is shifting, um, and frankly speaking, I know that it would have helped me in my evolution as a person, certainly in my recovery, and I haven't been able to find, find that anywhere. So it, it just, it spoke to me, I followed it, and it's kind of evolved and grown on its own. And tonight I'm hosting a women's circle, um, tomorrow a men's gather in Toronto, and it'll be interesting to see how the perspectives and opinions have changed or are different and or maybe similar um, than that in the United States. Um, but what I've gathered so far is that we're actually all more similar than different. So um, our fears and um, our concerns don't really change uh, no matter where we're from. Do you think that when we look at athletes, um, that seems that that would be so beneficial for, for a group that feels like they're put on a pedestal, you're different than anybody else, you know, not to change the subject too much, but, but even when we saw uh, NHL players that had committed suicide. They always wanted to relate it to head trauma, like they couldn't suffer the same things that everybody in, in society could suffer from mental illness. I mean, do we need to start to take different segments of society and have those conversations that, that they can come out and talk about? I don't have to talk about hat tricks tonight. I can actually talk about me as a human being and what I'm going through. Yeah, so one of the most recent kind of uh, brave acts, which I'd like to get to a point where we're not calling it brave, it just is normal, um, but Kevin Love uh, openly talked about dealing with anxiety, um, and that was such a big deal, which it, it is a big deal, because athletes don't talk about this stuff, but I'd like for it to get to a place where it's not that big of a deal. Um, so for me, the, th the thing is, you know, maybe like a threefold problem. One is athletes need to, to step up to the game and, and start talking about that. Um, two is media needs to change um, in that they're the ones asking the questions. So somebody within the media landscape needs to be brave enough to say, 
you know, I want to talk about something else. Um, and then three, uh, I think team ownership, management, coaching staff um, needs to see that as strength and not weakness. And if that is allocated to a certain part of the year um, where they do features on players, great. Um, it doesn't have to be, a, you know, an all-time conversation. Um, and then lastly, I'm going to add fans. Because frankly speaking, like, fans don't really care. That, that to me is the biggest disconnect between athlete and fans. You know, fans talk about athletes in the way that they worship them and they love them. But as soon as they make a mistake, they also hate them, right? And so fans don't look at athletes as human beings. No, it's production. Right, so what are you doing for me, you know? Um, so that relationship needs to change. And I don't know how to create that human connection. How do you humanize a god? Mm -hmm. really, because these kids grow up with posters on their walls and, and, and seeing these people as superheroes, um, but they're people, like my father, you know, who is just a guy who was very talented and with a bit of luck and hard work, you know, did all the things that he did, and yet he still is inept in handling a daughter, you know, and that's no different than maybe you or you yeah. or anybody else in this room. So how do we humanize our gods and um, allow them to just be human beings? I think we do see that a little bit more. I mean, we clearly have a long way to go, but there's an example that popped to mind when, when you were talking is, is when athletes have children, now they actually leave the team and they go and they, they spend this time with their wife and they meet their new daughter when or son, but like in the 80s or before then, they would just be on the road with the team and they're staying there, right? I think like you never, there was never any thought that they were, they had a life outside, the, you know, the ball field or the hockey rink or anything like that. And you see that now where it's actually reported that so-and-so had a, and that, I mean, that's a good news example, but I think it's a, it's a sign that they are being slightly more humanized and that maybe there, there's potential to be even more humanized. But, we even but there are debates, even in that day, like I, you'll see a media debate. I can't believe what's his name took three days off to go, I wouldn't have done that. Right. To get in a yeah. fight. Yeah, like, or we never got that when I was playing. You hear just the, like, uh, you know, he gets paid a lot of money. It's, you know. Or heaven forbid, the day after the child is born, he has a poor game. They're like, well, he wasn't sleeping because it's a newborn. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, how dare he? Yeah. Um, and so then there's that guilt for the wife as well. Mm. I mean, I, we faced that. My mom had three kids, and it was, you know, she literally had to take the whole load of being a parent um, just so. So, yeah, the media guys It's a small to, sign. Yeah, You yeah. know, that I think, I think there's still lots of work to do, but just, sure. the, just the fact that that's even mentioned anymore or uh, at the moment is, I think, is a step in the right direction. So getting back to your work, if people want to learn more about what you're doing and what you're up to, how can they uh, reach you? Yeah, so my website is aliankalarionoff.com, um, but I'm on all social media, so Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, and it's some variation of aliankalarionoff, either my first or last name or both. Um, and, you know, for me, I think what's interesting about these workshops is that people are constantly asking me, like, well, what are they, and what's it about, and what can I expect? And I always say, Expect the unexpected and allow yourself to surrender into the space of the unknown. I really don't provide much information because we live in a society right now where we're able to look up anything, meaning we will know what we're going to order at a restaurant before we arrive. So we need to be better 
to get better at just being in the moment and surrendering to um, whatever comes our way because that's how we build resilience and that's how we build um, character to be able to handle life's inevitable ups and downs. Well, I know you don't like the word, but I, I do think you are brave for sharing you. your story <laughs> and, uh, and just being so willing you know, to come here and uh, the way you tell your story on your website. Um, you're a trendsetter, especially in the space of eating disorders. It really, we really appreciate having you here. Thank you for having and, me. And uh, uh, we hope you learn a little bit more about what we do and that we can stay connected moving forward. So Absolutely. You and you both get an A-plus for your broadcasting yeah. skills. <laughs> wow, wow. That's the best news yet. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah.